Well, we continue our series on the family this afternoon, and after seeing that the fear of the Lord is foundational to the happy home, we now look at the family's building block, which is marriage. We continue to lay down some theological frameworks today on which to build later. We are not going to look at marriage comprehensively today, but we are looking at God's intention for marriage in the creation Intentions that we will realize come before man fell into sin. These are things that God has intended for for marriage and are intended to guide Christian families today. So Genesis 2, we're going to read uh, from verses 18 through 25 as we look at the creation of woman and the first marriage. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy word. Genesis 2, verse 18. These are the very words of God. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him an helpmeet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle, and to the fowl of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found an help meet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman, and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, we come to the glorious institution of marriage. And Father, we pray that even as the word was read, that we we had a reinvigorated sense of what marriage is, the beauty of it and the glory of it, the uh, beauty of man and woman being made one flesh. Father, would you help your minister now preach such precious things that are found in the word of God, that uh, marriages here would be strengthened by what is heard that uh, those who are not yet married may uh, prepare for marriage aright, and that those who are in a season of life where they are not married uh, may glorify God for the things that are revealed here, that reveal to them the glorious final marriage between Christ and his church. Father, we pray now that in the preaching of the word, your spirit would be uh, upon the minister who preaches as well as the congregation that hears. So we pray, open thou our eyes, that we may behold wondrous things out of thy law. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, the American church, as long as I have been uh, aware of it, has said that the institution of marriage has been under attack. From no-fault divorce in 1969 to cohabitation, now being normative for society, to the latest attack in 2015, where our Supreme Court allowed marriage between two members of the same sex. 
Truly, the institution of marriage, it is right, is under attack. It's hard to even understand as these things have accelerated what will come next. Polygamy, incest, the door seems wide open. But what we have to understand is it is no accident that marriage is under attack. The enemy of our souls despises marriage. Why? Because ultimately it is God's design. It is God's design. And it is God's foundation and blueprint for society. In fact, as we survey the decaying nature of our society and we work ourselves backwards to marriage, it's worth remembering what J.C. Ryle had to say, and I looked this up, in the 1850s. Listen to what he said. The nearer a nation's laws about marriage approach to the law of Christ, the higher has the moral tone of that nation always proved to be. The closer marriage laws are to the institution of marriage, the more moral a nation is. And as we look at the moral declension of our society, is there any surprise that it is linked entirely with the decline of marriage itself? J.C. Ryle Uh, He certainly said something true. He was looking at it from the other direction, which is as a nation reforms its marriage laws, its morality increases and improves. But we would look at it now on the other side, the other direction, as a nation's laws about marriage declines and declines away from the word of God. The moral tone of the nation entirely has fallen apart. But it's not the only, um, it's not only that the institution of marriage is under attack. What every Christian must understand is that their individual marriage is always under attack as well. By the flesh, the world, and the devil. The enemy hates our individual marriages. And our flesh, if left to its own devices, will destroy our marriages. To have strong marriages then today, we must understand marriage as a creation ordinance. To understand God's design for marriage and how his design ought to inform our individual marriages so that our marriages would be strengthened in the Lord and that we would honor him for his design and not seek to deviate from it. So our theme in this installation of our series is the institution of marriage. We're going to constrain ourselves today. Marriage is a big topic and the Lord has much to say. We're going to constrain ourselves to the creation of marriage today. Uh, We will consider its ultimate redemptive picture, its ultimate picture and fulfillment in Christ in a future sermon as we consider Ephesians 5. But there is so much, so much in Genesis worthy of reflection that we must begin here. So we'll begin our theme uh, or consider our theme under three heads. The first is the creation of the sexes. Second is the institution of marriage. The third is the leaving and cleaving. First, the creation of the sexes. To understand what marriage is, we must understand the creation of the two sexes. Why? Because to understand the two sexes is to understand how man and woman must relate in a marriage. First, before we consider the two sexes individually, let us remember mankind that mankind is really the apex of creation. It is the focal, we are the focal point of creation. Mankind's genesis was found in the determinate counsel of the Blessed Trinity. You remember Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And not spoken of, of any of the creatures that are revealed in Genesis. And in Genesis 1.27, after that, 
blessed statement, we read, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. And pay attention to this. Male and female created he them. Male and female then were both made in the image of God. We must recognize this. It's not just man that is the image of God, but male and female both in his image. Even though man was created first, and in marriage we will find he is the head, he is the superior in the relationship, uh, that is not the case in his essence. In his essence, he is not superior to the woman. The predominant, actually, and defining characteristic of both male and female is this. They are made in God's image, both of them, meaning their souls and not their bodies, right? Their bodies don't reflect anything of God who is pure spirit. Their souls are, and we won't go into this, I've covered this in other sermons, uh, their souls are, and a catechism is very helpful in this, their souls were made in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness with the law of God written upon their hearts. That's what it means to be an image bearer. Well, with that then, in chapter 1, in our chapter, chapter 2, we find the narrative of how God made man and woman. Adam was created out of the dust, and the breath of life was breathed into him by God, and man became a living soul, Genesis 2.7. So Adam was created by God out of dust, and life was breathed into him by God. But now we ask the question, Why was the woman Eve created? The answer to that question helps us understand marriage's primary purpose. And if you get this wrong, you will miss the point of marriage entirely. Genesis 2.18 And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. Outside of God, the woman was made to be the closest companion the man could have. But generally, note the nature of man before we get to woman. It is not good that the man should be alone. Mankind was made to be a social creature, wasn't he? That's true. You think of this, before the fall, right? This is before the fall, right? Before the fall of man into sin. Even then, it is not good that the man should be alone. So even before we talk about marriage, Whether you're married or not, it is not good to be isolated. It goes against the very design that the Lord has made for you. When you are tempted in that way, it is actually a temptation to sin, to say, I'm going to withdraw myself, especially from the church, but from all human company. It goes against the design the Lord has made for you. It is destructive, and you have seen, right? Even our society understands that. And they say, you know, when there's something uh, really, a man is cruel or something bad has happened, somebody will say, well, that man was a loner, right? There's an understanding it is not good for man to be alone by himself. Well, before that, then, as we understand that, then we see that the woman was created as well as a help that is meet or suited for him. That older language, this is a help that is suited for him. A help meet for him. Adam needed help to fulfill his role in verse 15, when the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep him, uh, keep it. So there are two things here that we understand. The man needed companionship, but also the man needed a helper suited for him. Suited for him. Not just any kind of companionship, not just any kind of help. Adam needed human companionship, human help, 
and that of the opposite sex. We will find out shortly. You know, this is such a, a brilliant chapter in so many ways. You know, God demonstrates this to Adam himself so that Adam would know it. Boys and girls, you probably remember mostly verses 19 and 20 because God brings animals, right, to Adam to name them. That's why you often remember this. But sometimes we lose sight of the primary point here in the narrative. It's not a bit of trivia like who named all the animals. It actually is here to reinforce man's need for woman. That's why it is here in this text. In the 18th verse, God said, I will make a help meet for him. Then what happens in the 19th verse? God brings the animals unto Adam to see what he would call them. Then in the 20th verse, after Adam surveys all the animals, what do you read? But for Adam, there was not found an help meet for him. See, he, he takes in all of creation. And God shows Adam, Adam, there is no one here. None of these creatures are suited for you. You need something better than this. And it's as though God brings Adam the, uh, the animal so that it wouldn't just be something he says. It, it, Adam should believe it if God said it, right? But he also, God is so kind and condescending to us. He demonstrates it so that Adam could see with his own eyes, none here are suited for me. He might say, he might have said, God's animals are magnificent. They're powerful. They're incredible. They showcase the power and wisdom of God. You think of the mighty lion, the towering giraffe, the hummingbird with its incredible wings. Yet none of them is a help meet for me. None can be my closest companion. Nothing in the animal kingdom. I don't want to go too much further than that for a moment here. Husbands, Adam was shown by God. All the creation cannot fill the place of your wife. In this world, you will never find anything better than your wife. God shows this to you in the parade of animals that he brought to Adam. Nothing under his dominion compared to the woman God gave him. Proverbs 18.22, Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing and obtaineth favor of the Lord. Adam was shown this. In the same way, I have to say this for our time, and I, am, I have been guilty of this myself. Uh, husbands, remember that the work of your hands in no way compares to the wife the Lord has given you. You find that men often, especially in our society, find more satisfaction with their labor or the things of the creation than the wife of their youth. And of course, ladies, that can go the other way around too. Too many will learn the lesson too late after their home is in ruins. So what you must take away from these verses is that there is nothing in the creation that can satisfy you like your spouse. Outside of God, and he's not part of the creation, right? So hear what I'm saying. In the creation, nothing is meant to satisfy you like your spouse. That'll even be true of children, as you will see shortly. Nothing is meant to satisfy you like your spouse. And so after showing Adam the animals, God then creates the woman. And even in this, right, before the fall, will you see the loving and merciful nature of God, right? The Almighty cares about man and his well-being. God is love. Does this not add to the wickedness, right? God does all this for Adam, and then chapter 3 comes, shortly after in the fall of man. Does this not add to the wickedness of man's sin? Our first parents despised a God of love, and they embraced the wicked devil's words against him. 
Beloved, sin is so wicked. See it here. See it here of what God was to Adam and Eve. Sin is so wicked because it is against a God who is good and does good to his creatures. So in verses 21 through 23, that said, Woman is created, and the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So the woman Eve is taken out of the side of Adam, taken from his substance. He's, she's not a separate creation. Notice this. He doesn't find another uh, group, uh, another uh, pile of dirt or dust and doesn't breathe into her separately. She has come from him, not a separate creation. This shows us something important for the gospel later on. All human nature has its origin in Adam. All humans have sprung out of him. Even the first woman does not have an origin separate from him. We cannot say then either that woman is substantially different from the man. She comes out of his flesh, his bone, made in God's image as Genesis 1 taught, also taken out of his substance. They are biologically distinct, yes, but in substance they are the same. And here we also find male headship established because the woman is taken out of the man. She's taken out of the man. He precedes her. He is her head. Even so, he is not superior in being or essence. It's also meant to be, as you see it here, a headship of love. Right? So many have said this so well. You see where the woman was taken out of the man, out of his side, out of his side, near to his heart, to be his nearest and dearest companion. Better men have put it this way, and this is not original in Matthew Henry. I'm just reading Matthew Henry's words because we're familiar with them. The woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. You think about this scene from Adam's perspective, right? Adam, God put him in a deep slumber, but then he awakes, and what does he perceive? The Lord brings Eve to him, to be wed to him. Could you imagine, after seeing a world of animals, now seeing Eve, what a blessed sight that must have been for Adam. And the Lord brings her to him to be wed to him, and this is the first marriage. She comes to him as many brides come to their husbands in marriage ceremonies today. He had surveyed all of the creation, right? But he never said this until Eve. This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. It looked at all those animals, as mighty as they are, but now he is taken aback. The word now in Hebrew has the sense of at last, at last, at last, after seeing all the creation, here is the help meet for me. Here is one that shares in my nature, this woman. Here is one bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, sharing my very nature, one flesh with me. Later on, the Apostle Paul will say, For no man ever hateth what? His own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. Ephesians 5.29 Showing that from the very beginning, the man was to nourish and cherish his own flesh, the woman, his wife. 
But the woman was not only beautiful to behold, again, if you think about this, going back to the creation, was not only beautiful to behold with Adam's eyes because she is made of his flesh and she is a human and she's beautiful to him, but certainly he was attracted to her because this is one who was also made in the image of God. All right? Adam saw something of his God's character in her, something he had never seen in a creature before, but at last, he sees the similitude of his God in another creature. And so after the naming of the animals, Adam named her sex woman, saying she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Uh, this, even in English, I think it communicates a bit of it. Like you have woman, right, comes out of man. There's a little bit of a play on words there in the word. But in the Hebrew language, the word used for man here is ish, while the word for woman is isha the feminine form of man. In other words, a female man is what this is. Even in the etymology of the words, we find that they share the same root and the same nature, ish and isha. Even so, in the relationship, God gave the duty to name her to Adam as her head. Also, as the head, we'll cover this another time, but I want you to see male headship here in the marriage. Also, as he is the head, after the fall, it is Adam who must answer to God first for the sin before Eve. Keep that in mind as our series continues when we speak of male headship. This is a part of the creation of mankind, male headship, and it precedes the fall. It precedes sin. In fact, it is the creation that Paul appeals to, to teach on male headship in the church. 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 13. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Now, he could have ended it there, I suppose. But what does he say? For Adam was first formed, then Eve. Right. So we find male headship is part of the creation order. And the teaching of the Bible then on male headship is not cultural, but is moral and for the sake of order. Okay, so in summation of this first head, man was made male and female, only two sexes made for companionship and help. The two sexes complement one another physiologically, spiritually, emotionally. We'll see later on that they can procreate. Male and female can. Male and male cannot. Female and female cannot. This is God's design. And so we see the creation of the sexes is meant to be a help to man and to give him a dear companion for life. So let's look at the institution of marriage next. So you have seen why a woman was initially created, a help suited for a man, a companion to be near to his heart, better than all the animals. So in verse 22, the Lord God did not bring him an animal, right? The Lord God brought the animals, but now he doesn't bring an animal, but brought her unto the man. He brings her to be wed to him, the first marriage, a momentous and joyous occasion. The first thing to note, is who brings a woman to a man to be wed. It is God. It is God that joins a man and a woman together. Jesus said, What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. Mark 10, verse 9. Husbands and wives, God has joined you together. And you must always remember that. Your marriage then, if God has joined you together, your marriage is about God It's not about yourself, it's not what you want out of it, but it's what God wants out of it. And if you would seek God's purpose for your marriage, you would be blessed in your marriage as well. You will resolve every difficulty. You will, in the fear of the Lord, always be reconciled because God has brought us together. 
You will die to self in marriage. You will live for God and you will live for spouse. Husbands would love their wives as Christ loves his bride, giving himself for her. Wives would reverence their husbands as the church reverences Christ. Why? Because God brings a woman to be wed to a man. You even see this echo in our marriage ceremonies. How many times is it in, in, in our marriage ceremonies that the bride is brought to the husband? Often through an intermediary like the father or, or someone like that. Even, you need to think of this, the final marriage of Christ to his church shows God bringing the church to Jesus in Revelation 21.2. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. God will bring the church to Jesus Christ in that last wedding. The beginning of marriage shows God bringing the woman to man. The end of marriage at the end of the book shows God bringing the church to Jesus Christ. And in Genesis 2.24, the parameters of marriage are explained. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. This is marriage's parameters. One male... One female, they create a new household and become one flesh. Two persons, and only two persons, of opposite sex enter a relationship meant for life where they become as one person. One man, the husband. One woman, the wife. And the couple is to dwell with each other and they are to leave their parents' home. They are to cleave to one another as if they are one flesh, as if one person is being made out of two. Marriage is an affectionate and intimate union, a union of mutual faithfulness. And I was thinking on this, right? In the New Testament, there are only two grounds for divorce that are given. They are for violations concerning these fundamental designs for marriage. If you think on them this way, what's the first ground? Adultery. It violates the one flesh design, Matthew 5, 32. What's the second ground? Sometimes we don't remember this one. It's willful desertion, 1 Corinthians 7, 15. What does that violate the design of? Cohabitation, where they go and they leave their parents' home. They come into one household and are one flesh. So you see then that the very design of marriage is understood in the only two grounds for divorce. That said, that's a little bit of an excursion, but our text is God's own explanation for marriage. And what we must understand then is that it is not a social construct. It is God's design. It is God's, and it is mandated and regulated by the Almighty. It's an institution of the creation like work and the Sabbath that precede the fall. It's a very good institution from God. That's why Satan and the world hate it and despise it. What you need to understand is, and you're going to be tempted in this direction, and I pray after today you never go in the direction of the world. Even in seemingly little ways, the world tries to undermine marriage. The world is always joking about marriage, isn't it? It calls the blessed union bondage, doesn't it? Sad to say, right? Instead of calling their wife bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, husbands often joke of their wife as the old ball and chain. Sad to say many Christians laugh at these jokes. 
No wonder our marriages fall apart. Do we not fear God? Marriage is the work of God. It is to be cherished and not laughed at. It is to be loved and not despised. And the problem is that in little ways, we imbibe the culture of this world, and we find that we are slowly, bit by bit, losing our affection for marriage. We have to guard our hearts in so many ways. Marriage is the work of God. And in the time of the New Testament, marriage was also being degraded. There were easy divorces, you read of, adultery, polygamy. But the Lord Jesus Christ, why we begin in creation, is that when the Lord Jesus Christ reformed marriage, he brought us back to the creation, to bring marriage to its proper place. That's why we begin with creation. He cited our verse 24 in Matthew 19, 4 through 6, and said, <laughs> listen to this, in a, in a way, the Lord Jesus Christ is always saying, why do you not read scripture? He said, have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And in a lot of ways, right, the Lord Jesus Christ is chastening so much of his church. Have you not read, in the beginning he made them male and female, and said, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain, they too, shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder." The Lord Jesus said, you want to understand the design for marriage? Go back to Genesis chapter 2. Have you not read? That's why we are here, so that we may read. Jesus emphasized there are only two sexes, meaning there are only two genders. We'll talk about that another day. And that one man and one woman are to be married. Not more than one man, not more than one woman, not two men, not two women, one man, one woman, two persons. He's emphatic, twain. Two, and two only become one flesh. Two become one. They twain, the two shall be one flesh. And in that he put to death polygamy. He said as well, What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. Here it is again. How foundational to marriage. God joins husband and wife together. Married people, when did you last think? God has made us one. God has made us one. And if I think of putting asunder this relationship outside of those two allowances made for divorce and sin on the other party, if I contend against God, I I would then contend against God himself, wouldn't I? Because God has brought us together. And no man is allowed to tear asunder what God has put together. But if I see God is the one who has put us together, The fear of the Lord, as we saw it last week, would bring blessings to marriage, and I will resolve in every way to bless and honor God in my marriage. I will honor and cherish my spouse as he calls me to. And when I think of all their faults, and I think of all my faults, I would never lose sight of the fact that it is God who knows what he did when he brought me together with my wife. Did not make a mistake there. And since God is the one who joins husband and wife together, when married, the Bible says, we actually enter into a covenant which makes it even more solemn. Malachi 2.14 says, Yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. It's the wife of your covenant. Why do we take marriage vows? Because God sees marriage as a covenant commitment. 
We take vows to God because he has put us together, right? A vow is a religious exercise where we say to God, you have brought us together in covenant and I will make vows before you concerning my spouse. And he will hold us to the terms of the marriage covenant as found in the scriptures. Here's a representative marriage vow Presbyterian husbands have made to their wives. I do take thee to be my married wife and do in the presence of God and before this congregation promise, and here's this language, and covenant to be a loving and faithful husband unto thee until God shall separate us by death. The wives take a similar vow. I do take thee to be my married husband, and I do in the presence of God and before this congregation promise and covenant to be a loving, faithful, and obedient wife unto thee until God shall separate us by death. It's beautifully simple, isn't it? But it's very rich and really requires the grace of God to uphold. You know, we began our series on family with the fear of the Lord. And if we feared God as we should, we would remember our marriage covenant. When was the last time you thought on your marriage vows, married people? On your anniversary, perhaps you should review your marriage vows before the Lord. Would that not be a fitting thing to do instead of just going out to dinner or, or getting flowers, but to go before the Lord that day and say, help me, Father, keep my vows. Oh, help me repent of where I have fallen short of my vows. And the grace of repentance would be blessed of the Lord and strengthen your marriages. So if there are difficulties in your marriage today, you might ask, am I keeping my vows faithfully? Is it on me? You know, we're so prone to think of the other person. But let me ask about my own keeping of my vows. Am I faithful to what I have told the Lord? And if you have trouble, right, thinking on your spouse, right, you think that you have entered a covenant with her before God. And then your mind is, we'll look at this when we consider Ephesians, right? When I think of the difficulties in my marriage, if I have any, and I think of my spouse as difficult, I think on the Lord Jesus Christ and that covenant of grace that he covenanted to love sinners who despised him. And I say, how can I not do less than that in my own marriage? Because this, this person is far less trouble than I am to the Lord. Ask the Lord to give you grace to keep your marriage covenant. Well, what about children in marriage? Well, we'll cover children in upcoming sermons. But part of the design for marriage was procreation. Genesis 1.28, after man's creation, he commanded them, be fruitful and multiply. So children are ordinarily, and we love hearing your children and their sounds here in the congregation, uh, children are ordinarily a part of the uh, union of the marriage bond, and they are a blessing. Lo, here's that word again, lo, behold, Children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward in Psalm 127. So ordinarily, and I'm going to cover that more later, ordinarily in marriage, there must be children. To not desire children in marriage arises from a root of selfishness. But one of the ways we delight in our spouse, when we think on loving our spouse, is to delight having children with them. It used to be a case, right, and maybe this is gone away. I don't hear it so much anymore. But I remember in old times, and I'm not even that old. I might look at boys and girls, but I'm not that old. But uh, it was the case that when man and woman used to court one another, what would one of their thoughts be? What will our children look like? We'd always, they'd ask, what will our children look like? Because children were at the forefront of marriage thoughts. Same time, we do recognize in a fallen world, many couples cannot have children. 
Abraham and Sarah suffered, so did Hannah and others. And so what we have to remember, though, is that ordinarily children are the blessed fruit of the womb. Children are not, and get this straight, they're not essential to marriage. They're not essential to marriage. It's a mistake to think so. The marriage bond is a blessed union of two persons becoming one flesh. And even in time, right, for even those who have been fruitful in life, in old age, a time will come when natural children are no longer possible. But that does not mean then that the marriage bond is over or useless. It still endures. Children are not the essence of marriage. But what have we heard is the essence of marriage? Companionship. She is thy companion. It is not good to be alone. She is a help meet for you, suited for you. Those are parts that are the essence of marriage and fundamental to it. In other words, infertility does not destroy a marriage. Neither does being past childbearing age destroy a marriage. I'll say more on that a bit later as we consider children in our series. But first, some brief applications out of what you have observed thus far. It might help us recognize if we are keeping our marriage vows. First, your spouse was designed by God to be your closest and dearest companion. Be jealous for this near companionship that the Lord is teaching us. The the one flesh relationship is never spoken of in any other human relationship you might have on this earth. Not your children, not your parents, not your best friends. The physical union of marriage is not the totality of the meaning of one flesh. It is a true unity that husband and wife are to have as though you are one person. You are each other's nearest companion. Husbands, you are to rejoice with the wife of thy youth. Proverbs 5.18 You are to be ravished with her love always. Proverbs 5.19 No one else's. You are to be ravished with each other's love husbands and wives. That is the design of marriage. Wives are not to be contentious with their husbands. Proverbs 19.13. We'll continue some of that as we consider more in the marriage relationship in other sermons. But it was the fear of the Lord, we remember last week, that is the beginning of wisdom in the Proverbs. And so we must grow in our affections for our spouses, married couples. And if your affection and love has cooled to embers, you need to rekindle it by God's help. You think of this. Isn't it a remarkable thing that the design God has for marriage is foundationally described in this way? One word, love. Love and the highest love you can have with another. That's the will of God for you, isn't it? To enjoy your spouse. Also, husbands and wives, as we look at these two purposes here of marriage, they must also cohabit one with another. You know, being away... Uh, due to necessity is one thing like a military deployment or business trip. But if that is routine and you are rarely in the same house together, change your lifestyle or your marriage will suffer. Second, be jealous to guard the marital bond. Never let anyone else intrude upon it. I don't even mean that in ways that violate the seventh commandment. Not someone of the opposite sex. Certainly, I must guide my, 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 guard my eyes and my heart. Sure, But even though, you know, men and women, but let me say it because I'm a man, even though I have male friends, I cannot have any be closer than my wife. None. 
I am one flesh with only one person on this whole earth, my wife. Men, do not spend more time with other men than your wife. To go out each night with the guys to leave your wife alone is sinful. Women, the same goes for you in reverse. No friendship is meant to be better than your husband's love. None. Not even your own parents, not even your own children are to intrude on this bond. And though children are a design for marriage, marriage is more profound than having children. It is companionship and help one to another. That's what makes a marriage wonderful. Even if you cannot have children, it is a blessed thing. And when a couple can no longer have children and the children leave their home, the marriage is still a blessed thing. Husband and wife ought to be growing closer together until the day comes when death do you part. And that takes us to our last heading, which is the leaving and the cleaving. A new family, Genesis 2 tells us, is established by way of marriage. Husband and wife leave their parents' homes and they begin their new one together and cleave one to another. We even sing of it in the royal wedding psalm, Psalm 45, verse 10. Hearken, O daughter, and consider and incline thine ear. Forget also thine own people and thy father's house. This has a very important implication for marriage. The first is the predominant familial relationship shifts when you marry. No longer will father and mother be your primary human relation. But now husband and wife bond together as they become one flesh. They leave and they cleave. Many difficulties come upon families that do not take this to heart. Many do. Husbands and wives will have parents come between their relationship. And while they must still honor father and mother according to the fifth commandment, the husband is not to give his father or his mother de facto headship over his home. The wife is not to look to her father or mother as her head anymore. She is to reverence her husband over her father now. And godly fathers and mothers, and maybe you're in an age where now your children are going out to be married, you must respect this relationship. You must. You must not intermeddle with your children's marriages unless they ask for help and advice together. It's very easy to run afoul of the proverb in marriage. He that passeth by and meddleth with strife belonging not to him is like one that taketh a dog by the ears. Proverbs 26.17 It is so easy for parents to want to intermeddle with strife that is not theirs. Let the couple come to you for help, but don't you intermeddle with this new family. Parents, I want you to look at it this way. And maybe this will spur you on if you have children. You had about two decades or so of your influence and guidance on your children. You should have raised your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Your primary duty of guiding them is over. You had your time. You had your time. You need to commit them to the Lord and not intermeddle with their marriage. If they ask for advice, sure, but still be very cautious. That also means parents, today, your marriage is not for the sake only, let me put this qualifier, not only for the sake of your children. You are to prepare them to leave your home one day. And you must be diligent about that day by day. The 18 years go by quickly. I've discovered that next month. My oldest uh, will be in October, 18 years old. And I still vividly remember the day I held him in the hospital. 
I still remember that vividly. But now he's in college, and God willing, will have his own home soon. The point is this, and this becomes a real problem in many marriages. You cannot cling to your children. God means for them to leave your home. You raise them by pointing them to the Lord. You prepare them each and every year to to leave the home and be wed and to have their faith set in the Lord Jesus Christ so that you will be confident that when they leave, they will say to you, as we heard so recently in Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord and you will be glad and you will rejoice in that and you will be happy that they will follow the Lord. That also means your marriage must continue after every child in your home has left. Husband and wife must continue to love, cherish, and adore one another. It's an evil thing, a very evil thing that some marriages endure only for the sake of the children. People will say that. We're married only for the sake of the children. And then the marriages end, whether uh, officially or de facto, when the children are gone. That's an evil practice. It's contrary to the very design of marriage. You are to cherish one another until death do you part. And your love is actually to grow husband and wives as you grow older. I can say of a truth, and I hope I do not continually embarrass my wife, that she is more beautiful today than the day I first met her. She really is. Because as we grow together, right, I, I, I see more of God's work in her. I see more of God's grace in her. And the attraction is what must have been a, a huge component of the attraction that uh, Adam had to Eve, that here is one made in the image of God who is growing closer to the likeness of my Lord Jesus Christ. And I adore her all the more. This goes back to the primary design of marriage, companionship and mutual help. The other purposes for marriage we'll consider another day. To have children and prevent lust are secondary. She is thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. And when it comes to the duration of marriage, God's design is until death, as I have said. It is a lifetime covenant. But that said, this is also helpful for us to remember. Our marriages are a temporary estate in this life. They are. Therefore, this life only. When our spouse dies, our marriage is complete. You need to think of it in that way. Romans 7, 2. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. My um, biblical counseling professor at the seminary told me about an elderly minister who had just lost his wife. And he was wondering what to do with the marriage ring. And he asked himself, should I wear it or should I remove it? And then he realized from the Bible that his marriage had run its appointed course. That his wife was now with her eternal bridegroom, Jesus Christ. She was prepared and had been prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And so he put his ring away. The marriage had run its course. Because in the life to come, Christ says we will not be married to our spouses For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven, Matthew 22, 30. Our earthly marriage is just for our pilgrimage here on the earth. They prepare us for our heavenly marriage to Christ. So remember that, that as we considered in the Song of Songs, right? Even if we have difficulty in our marriages, there is a greater marriage that is yet to come. And that helps us endure even in marriage difficulties, that we are truly married to the Lord if we are in Christ. 
So out of Genesis, you have seen marriage as institution, and we really, as you have probably realized, just scratched the surface. And the greatest picture of marriage is yet to come, the marriage of Christ to the church, the mystery of marriage revealed in Ephesians 5, Jesus Christ wed to his bride, the church. And so, as better men have said, the Bible begins with marriage, and it ends with the marriage of the Lamb. It is Jesus Christ and the church that marriages must be patterned against. You can learn much from creation. You can learn much from Adam's marriage to Eve, but how much more we learn of marriage from redemption and Christ's marriage to the church. Marriage is a gospel picture of love between Christ and his beloved. We'll have to look at that next time because we will see in Genesis 3, right, that Adam failed his wife, but Jesus never does. In marriage, if our hearts are filled with such gospel love for Christ, our marriages will be impacted and our marriages will be strong and vibrant because as Peter says, remember you are both heirs of the grace of God. As you remember the gospel, your marriages will be stronger. With that then, it is the longing for Jesus that must fill the heart of every believer in first place. No matter if you are married, unmarried, widowed, or divorced, all believers have a heavenly husband and an understanding of marriage, even if you will never be married, right? If an understanding of marriage throughout the Bible, even if you are never to be married, helps prepare you for eternity. That's the glory of marriage. Because at the end of the Bible, the church cries out to her husband, the spirit and the bride say, come. And that's how we look at our marriages. We say, in marriage, I see a picture of my eternal state with Jesus Christ. And the spirit and the bride say, come, Lord Jesus. We'll consider Christ's marriage to the church next time as the series continues. But until then, let us rise for prayer and say, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Our Father in heaven, what a beautiful design we have from you, O God, in marriage. Help husbands love their wives, seeing nothing in creation can fill their hearts like their spouse. Forgive us, husbands who have not loved our spouse as we ought. Help wives reverence their husbands. Help them see something of Christ in their husband, especially as the husband is a believer. We pray, Father, that you would forgive wives who have not loved their husbands as they are to love Christ. Father, we pray that you would strengthen all the marriages here. We pray for those who are not yet married. We pray that you would prepare them for marriage and maybe even use the scripture today to prepare them bit by bit for the day of their marriage. Father, we pray that you would bring spouses to all of our covenant children. If it is your will for all any of them or all of them to be married, we pray that they would be. And for those who are single at this time, we pray that they would devote themselves all the more to the Lord, that they would look to their heavenly husband all the more that they would grow in longing and that they would see, as we will see one day, that truly not even all the, the, the women or men on the earth can compare to Jesus Christ and how wonderful he is to love us, even to die for us when we were yet sinners. Oh, we thank you for our heavenly bridegroom. Prepare us, Father, as a bride adorned for her husband for that day when you will consume the heavenly marriage. Help us to live in view of that marriage, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.